And good morning, everybody, and welcome to Small Biz Matters live in the studios of Triple H 100.1 FM. Thank you so much for joining me this week. So resilience is one of those words that is overused, bandied about a little bit when describing small business. It's convenient for politicians to mention that we're resilient and the backbone of the economy, but what does that actually mean to the individual? After COVID, it could probably be adopted by every single business that has still got their head above water. But today's story is unique and our guest has come a long way from Melbourne to share her story with us and inspire all those small business listeners out there. Dr. Suji Sanjivan is the co-founder of Light and Glow Designs, started her business just as COVID hit hard, especially for retail and manufacturing in Melbourne, and through severe never-ending lockdowns, massive supply chain disruptions, abrupt location changes and downturns in her business, she never thought she would survive. But she's emerged triumphant and a success story. Not only that, but she supports her small business migrant community by being their representative on the Victorian Government Multicultural Business Ministerial Council. And she's inspired numerous other female entrepreneurs through appearances on Shark Tank and mentoring through local business support programs. She's joining us today here on Small Biz Matters to share with us her story, her amazing journey from King's College medical graduate to a small business success story here in Australia, and to teach us the importance of building on the skills you never thought you had to overcome the hurdles that are still to come. Welcome to Small Biz Matters, a show where we are dedicated to empowering small businesses and advisors to engage with policy and advocacy. Why? Because what government does very much matters to all small biz, good and bad. Sponsored by the Australian Small Business and Family Enterprise Ombudsman's Office, each week we sit down with experts, advocates, business leaders, policymakers and politicians to dive into specific areas of government policy that affects your clients and your business. We'll give you the heads up on what's coming down the policy pipeline, find out who's fighting in your corner and empower you with ways you can influence those decisions which affect your business every single day. We proudly broadcast live on our local community radio station, Triple H 100.1 FM, the community broadcasting network, and later wherever you get your favourite podcasts. Let's hear from this week's expert on Small Biz Matters. People, policy, purpose. And welcome back to the studio. Thank you so much for joining us. And today we've got a very special guest. Suji, first of all, thank you so much for coming all the way from Melbourne to join us here on Small Biz Matters. No, thank you so much for having me, Lexi. It's my absolute pleasure. Now, we met a couple of years ago at the Amex Small Business Showcase in in Parliament House, and you were invited because you were, um, I guess, an inspiring business. But after talking with you, I felt that I needed to share your story with our listeners because we talk a lot about resilience and we say how good it is and a strength and something that just comes naturally to small businesses, but often it doesn't. And I'm keen to share with everyone your story. So first of all, tell us about your background, how you came into running a small business here in Australia. Sure. Um, So if we go back a few years, so I grew up in London. I was fortunate enough to um, have an education there. My parents migrated to London from Sri Lanka as students. Um, And yeah, I guess as coming from a Southeast Asian family, there was only multiple options in terms of medicine, law, engineering. In my family, it was just medicine, medicine, medicine. (laughs) So you had three options. That's it. It was only one or the... My mother wanted to be a doctor and things um, played out differently. And so I was the eldest... I am the eldest of three girls. And so I went through med school. And I entered med school... I felt that that's what I wanted to do, but soon enough as I entered, I realised it wasn't what I wanted to do. And suddenly this 
freedom that I felt at university um, started to give me different ideas. But and I struggled. And I'll be honest with you, I was vulnerable. I struggled. I'd been spoon fed through school, got the grades that I needed, and I felt that I knew everything until you come into this space and you actually know very little um, about the world around you. And I failed in second year and I failed again. And they said to me, look, take a pause um, and do a bachelor's. And I did that. And I realized, you know what? There's one thing that my parents have taught me and I'm so grateful for is that tenacity. Don't give up. And that's exactly what I did. And I entered King's College, went through med school. Um, But this time it was more to proved to myself that I could do it but I knew that once I'd done the course that I didn't have the heart to do medicine and I wasn't going to put myself in a position to treat people when my soul and everything that I had a passion wasn't behind it and so I stepped into clinical research. And did you find that with that um, with that work that you were doing at university and that was that was to work for your parents to to basically achieve what they needed 100% I was doing it for someone else I was living someone else's dream and that's what I had I thought was that was it that was my life I was doing my life was paved in front of me this is what I had to do and I didn't realize I had a choice and unfortunately that is the case for many migrant Southeast Asian children you know your careers are set aside for you you live your parents dreams Um, and sometimes you realize It's not what you want and you don't have the passion. Every day becomes almost run off the mill. And that's when I actually crossed paths with Jira and I were introduced. So your modern day arranged marriage. (laughs) (laughs) And um, he was a doctor. He was based in Sydney. He'd actually been uh, finished medicine in Russia. So his story was is truly unique. Um, He was in Sri Lanka uh, through when the civil war was happening. So as a young child at 10, 11, he would witness things that many children honestly shouldn't see or face. Um, he lived in bunkers, was trapped, he's, he and his parents. So um, at the time it was Jeeva and his older brother. Mum was stranded in Jaffna, father was in uh, Perdania, he was a lecturer there. Um, so he was he, a university lecturer? He was a university lecturer. Um, he's now um, the dean and professor, he's retired now. Mother was a principal in Jaffna, both highly educated yet still confined to you know the wars uh, and the perils. But so, yeah, he would tell me these stories about how he lost friends in front of him and things. And as a child, that really, it, it haunts you. Um, but once again, I think it's that fight that you have within yourself that certain people have. He pushed through and um, he went to Russia to do medicine. His father didn't have um, sufficient funds to put him through the English course, so he actually spent a year learning Russian wow. to do medicine in Russian, um, and then he went to do London to do some training, and then he ended up in Sydney. So he fought his way through. Um, he sought refuge. He's a refugee. And as I was saying earlier, the term refugee that we come across has so many negative connotations, not just in the external world, within my internal family itself. Um, people refuse to use the word. They don't. Ref- and to be honest, Jeeva's hidden his story as a result of that. And I think it's about time that we break those barriers and we speak about it. And I don't think there's anything negative. You can be loud and proud as a refugee, mm-hmm. and there's nothing wrong with that at all. So yeah, that's when we met, and um, I moved to Melbourne. I needed to get away from that pressure cooker environment of when are you now uh, graduate? Like when are you uh, registering? When are you working? 
And I, I suddenly, thought you were going to say, when are you getting married? When yeah. you're having babies? No, no, it's a different we, kind of pressure. <laughs> uh, my <laughs> mum wanted me to register and work as a doctor. And unfortunately, that's not what I wanted to do at that point. I drew a line and I met someone who supported me. And I came over here, worked at Murdoch Children's Research Institute, which was great. I loved writing. I loved I have a way with words and I love putting that into policies and development in early childhood development. And years went by and I felt that there was almost like a glass ceiling. I couldn't seem to get further. And if I want to put it so boldly, I came to Australia and I felt I was in 1980s England. I was facing things, um, remarks and people would walk on the street, oh, you speak English well. And I'm like, you've made this judgment call just by the way that I look Mm. that I shouldn't. And so this was when? When did you arrive? In 2009, in February. So five minutes ago. Yeah. Um, so, and I remember wanting to go buy a car and being asked, showing this Ford um, uh, Falcon, that's it. And I was like, I don't want a Ford Falcon. Uh, the reason being, oh, they're great for taxis. Oh, so it was, you were going to be an Uber driver. That's right. Um, and so... And I learned to brush it off, and as I did in the 1980s growing up in England, it was one of those things you face. You, I refused to talk Tamil because I wanted to assimilate with people. I, want, I no longer wanted to adhere to my cultures. I didn't want to go to the temple. I didn't want to do those things because I wanted to be like everyone else. Um, and university, as I grew up, I started to come out of it. Once again in 2009, I was thrown back into those trenches where I felt that I had to fit in. And um, that's where I felt really constrained at uh, Murdoch and um, in the environment. It wasn't just Murdoch. I think it was just Melbourne at the time that I saw it. So fast forward to having um, Tharen, my son, in 2011 and um, things got harder as a female, as a mother, uh, having less – I mean, we had no family here, but less time on my hands um, – I was forced to walk away from my job because they were a contract job because I was no longer flexible. So it's these things that really started to imprint in me that there's these, I guess, barriers that we all face. I think that's as common barriers that we all face. And I said to myself, before I have my second child, as because we wanted to expand our family, something had to change. Jiva and I couldn't keep going. Like Jiva was working mad hours. He was all over the place in terms of hospital hours. He was in allergy and um, uh, respiratory at Royal Children's Hospital, then Alfred. And something had to change. And I loved dabbling in creativity. I'd always had, but I had to kind of brush that aside. I had to choose chemistry over arts because that's what I had to do. And suddenly I started kind of dabbling in scents and design work. And that's really where the start of Light and Glow came about. When you say dabbling, um, I'm picturing you in your kitchen. Am I right to be almost like a chemist (laughs) with some beakers? and? And, um, Yes, I mean, it started on the kitchen bench top. So just playing around with scents, ordering scents and just understanding and reading. What what do each scent do? There's an art and psychology behind each of the scents and really understanding how they trigger the hormones. Mm. And coming back from that science background, I was able to kind of um, understand it with a, a certain depth. And it really interested me. And that's really where Light and Glow kind of started to take off. But I never really saw myself as a business person. I had no training. I had no expertise. So like every other business person who starts a business. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And so... Um, what did we, it was my son's baby shower and I'd made some, uh, you know, 
scented candles as cliched as and as it sounds but and then it really was because I wanted to do something different we had these woodwick can woodwicks that we did uh, created and I gave it out to some friends and they said this is great you should start a business and I said certainly not I'm not going to start a business and certainly not a candle business in a saturated market but it was much more than that it was the scent side that really interested me and Juva said look I'll support you as he has in every step of the way and he said I'll happily do events with you because I can't sell at all. <laughs> so, and Actually, I, said, I do remember that about yeah. the parliamentary showcase. You were there and, and he was so <laughs> excited and just so enthralled and, and encouraging and, and supportive of you. I, yeah. I naturally thought that he was your sales manager. <laughs> he pretty and much he is, to be yeah. honest. Uh, he's got the gift of the gab. He loves to talk, talk to people and it's that human connection. I think people really buy into that. And it's almost like a family business. Um, my son was there at that time as well. So, um, yeah, he, he got involved. He started to go to events and people started to realise there was a, a difference to what we were doing. It was candles, but there was much more than that. So tell me a little bit about when you started and just how the hits just kept on coming from yeah. that point. So as a business, small business, as I mentioned, we really didn't understand what we were doing. So whatever revenue was coming in, we're like, great, let's spend it. Let's, you know, utilize it. But understanding what cash flow meant, understanding that we had at that time, it was just myself, my husband, and it was at home. So no overheads as a small business. But what we didn't do is we only saw maybe meters ahead. What we didn't realize was there was much more should the business expand, then we need a warehouse. That's costs, then staffing, all of those things we didn't anticipate in our cash flow forecast. And so what I did at that time was um, I looked around and there were some council run programs uh, that were teaching foundations for business. So I stepped in and I said, you know what, I'm going to understand what I'm doing here before I go forward because we're going to be in too deep um, and have probably go backwards because at this time we were, you know, it was going, um, we were scaling phenomenally. So I learned to understand what the nuances of business and that's really where that course came into it and I've done that over the years to be honest whether it's in leadership or anywhere I I think education is um, a foundation that we all need in terms of understanding where we are. But do you think that's because of your background is so educative it's so important to you and it was a constant in your life for so long I mean if you're studying medicine it seems to go on forever. Yeah. Um, But how would you suggest someone who doesn't have um, that consistent high-level education throughout their um, career sure. um, to start immersing themselves in short courses that are going to help their business. How do they overcome that, do you think? I think it's an really un- – as a small business owner, we wear, wear many hats. And if you don't have clarity – and I'm not saying having a deep understanding to have a full-blown course on, say, social media or business management or finance, but I do believe we need to have a certain amount of clarity – on each of those aspects to be able to hold people that eventually work for us accountable. Mm. Because if you don't have that accountability, people will say, this is great, this is working, here is the analytics, it looks fabulous. And you kind of look on the paper and go, yeah, that looks great, but truly it's not. So I think we all need to understand that there are certain elements. If you step into business, you do need to have some sort of foundation, whatever it may be. It doesn't have to be extensive. And there are many places out there... um, where you can start because I know that education courses take they're expensive it's an expense and sometimes you go you know what I can't afford that expense right now Um, I can't take that money out of my family or the business or whatever it may be 
there one there are many local councils and the, certainly our local council run them free of charge which council is that it's Wyndham City Council mm-hmm. and so I enrolled in that in 2017 and it was a six-month program that was completely free of charge and we had a business coach um, taking us through and the council still run it they run it for startups they then run it for more I guess um business that have been in business for more than five years that's fantastic so, what a yeah. great program and just while if anyone's listening and wants to google while they're listening have a think about looking at you know your local associations um uh, maybe your chambers of commerce might have short yeah. courses as well community colleges yeah. are often heavily subsidized as is TAFE yeah. um as is some of the um RTOs so look into those as well so one of the things that we talked about um when we were chatting uh, at parliament house was was those you know those successive <coughs> hits that you got hit with so you started when compared to the start so of COVID? the business really uh, was light and glow the candles started in 2016 but when we started to scale in 27 2018 it was still rough waters there was uh, the elections happening things were it was hard we moved out of home in moved out of home. Home. <laughs> so should I say, my baby uh, or, the business, yes, the business baby home. moved out of home <laughs> <laughs> in 2017 july into a small warehouse and i tell you the warehouse was it had scaffolding for stairs Upstairs was kind of falling apart, but you know, we, it, it did its job. Um, we realized that's all we could afford. We made a conscious choice that that's what was needed, but separating the home and the business was the best thing that we could do at that time as we were scaling, because as business owners, we immerse ourselves almost 24 seven into it. You do need a space to be able to go close the door, walk away. Um, Especially if you've got young children hanging off you. Exactly. And so for us, that outgoing, that monthly consistent outgoing of bills, commercial building, and now we had staff as well, started to obviously drain on you because you're paying those bills every two weeks, four weeks. And we knew that we had to make X amount of income to ensure that we survive. We had to make two times X to make sure we you know, grow and so on and so forth. And, and we have grown for every two years, but it hasn't come without the hard work. For the first three, four years, Jiva and I didn't take an income. We were you know, using our... Um, savings to put it back into the business and anything that the business was earning was going back because we were in scale-up mode Mm. and that was a choice because we knew we wanted to grow the business Um, and everyone can do that at their own pace but understanding how much it's going to cost is extremely important then that was 2019 it was the elections were happening retail was really starting to slow so much so at one point we were like, what are we doing? We then, we'd at that 2019, we'd just moved into our second warehouse. But you didn't so even realise what was coming. Coming, no. So we'd gone from 100 square metres now to 350 square metres. The rent had gone up by three times. We needed to move though because the space was too tight. But once again, it really kind of constrains you when you do move. There's the movement cost, but the, and we're like, how do we, how do we manage this? And that's actually when the Amex Shop Small came in and we met um, the team behind there and that's how we've maintained relationships. And that's what we realised is relationships, people matter. Often we forget that and we live in this digital space and don't forge those connections. But what we did was 
make those connections and make them meaningful. How did you how did you make that connection with I mean you're like a teeny weeny tiny weeny business that yes. started in the kitchen and then there's Amex. Yes. So global. How, how do you how do you bridge that gap? Uh, I mean And we we didn't it did was Did you research or did it Not at all. It was just a phone call that came. So we were we were obviously accepting Amex as part of our payment um, when we were at events and I got this call from their media team and said, look, there's this opportunity for a shop small campaign. I thought it was a hoax. I honestly was like, okay, how much is this going to cost me? And they said, no, no, no. And it, I didn't believe it until the day they rocked up with three people from Amex and four f- photographers, cameramen, makeup. And I was like, wow, this is actually quite incredible. But we were the only Victorian business that were lucky enough. And I'll say lucky because that is luck out of how many millions of businesses that they picked us. But they said the story resonated with them. Mm. And this and is a really good example of where corporate Australia can be assisting small yes. business. And there are lots of really great programs out there that similarly yeah. other, you know, other organisations do the same and the government's doing the same as well. And so that connectivity, you talk about those relationships being so critical. Tell me about the... Um, uh, the council that you sit on and how you support um, other businesses sure. in your in your area. Sure. As I mentioned earlier, like I've faced many hurdles in whether it be going through that mental health um, aspect because I struggled when I failed medical school at that time. It put me in a very, very dark place. But to seek help was frowned upon. So it was myself and only myself had to, I had to deal with that. And those, and then also the judgment, the then coming here to Australia, facing the hurdles that we faced here as a as a migrant, but then as a mum and as a female, all of those things, I realised that I'm not the only one facing this. I'm sure the person sitting next to me on the train is facing very similar things. And so many of us are facing, if we don't speak about it, no one will know. And that's where I... And uh, no, this position came up. Um, actually, How did what, you find out about the position? Wyndham City Council have another committee for Wyndham. So they sent me an email at the time. So I made a conscious effort to join these committees in. So when we won our first Wyndham Business Award in 2017, we walked in not knowing anyone. I remember Jiva looking at me and going, why are you putting in for an award? This is ridiculous. And I said to him, no. Being able to write down the successes, what I've done, and to be able to convince someone externally that I have achieved this and I'm worthy, actually it's something that I really want to do. Whether we win or not is irrelevant, but it gives me that kind of, allows me to put pen to paper and allows me to do it. And we won. Uh, we walked into a room of 300 people. It was, I was 36 weeks pregnant at the time as well. <laughs> I'd just come out of hospital so that morning. So people. Yes. <laughs> I'd come out of hospital that morning because they were going to do a season and they're like, no, let's not, because I was, and I didn't know anyone. But now I walk into those awards and I am, I do know people. People come to us and go, how, you know. And I don't say that as a brag. I think that often when people talk about their wins, it's mistaken for a brag. It's not. It, for me to be able to say, this is where I've come from A to B, people can see that they can also do that. Anyone can do that. And so that's where we met the Wyndham City uh, Committee for Wyndham, which is another organisation that I joined. And this, uh, this email came and I thought... Minister, they had two, uh, two roles. It was um, small business one and a multicultural one as well. And I thought, I'm going to put my hand out for multicultural because I believe I can stand there and I can talk about what struggles that I face, but allow, inspire others, hopefully. Um, and I know the word's overused, but hopefully allow others to see what we've been through mm-hmm. and give them hope. 
Um, so as a migrant, as a refugee, as I was saying, my husband is. And it was more, it was pro bono. It wasn't something, and I do this a lot of programs where um, I come up and I speak about everything that I've gone through, that hopefully out of the 300 people that are listening, two or three people's lives that we can change. And um, I've done my job because we lived, many lived through life um, who don't share their stories and there's so many stories we all have a story to tell and I just hope that allow that by being here today that others think that maybe I can share my story and that can help someone else that's fantastic thank you well we'll we'll take a quick break here on small biz matters and when we return we're going to talk to Suji a little bit more about what happened during COVID uh, and how she continues to fight and continues to draw on those skills from her previous worlds to help with her running a small business we'll be back after this This episode of Small Biz Matters is proudly sponsored by the Australian Small Business and Family Enterprise Ombudsman's Office. As Biffio assists, advocates and provides information to Australia's 2.5 million small and family businesses when and where they need it. Aspifio delivers practical and actionable advice and research to governments on how to improve policies and legislation. Since its inception, Aspifio has responded to over 40,000 requests for assistance from Australian small and family businesses and provides access to dispute resolution services, including assistance with disputes that fall under the franchising, dairy, horticulture and oil codes. Aspifio also connects small and family business with mental health support should the need arise. As an independent advocate for small business owners, Aspifio is committed to ensuring that Australia is the best place to start, grow or transform a business now and well into the future. See how Aspifio can support you at asbfeo.gov.au. So, Suji, we've been speaking before uh, the break about your journey from King's College London to Australia, um, getting married, having babies, you know, considering what, what to do with your career and realising that your dream really was to start your own business, but drawing on all those marvellous experience and that research um, skill set that you have to really uh, create this wonderful line of fragrances. And um, I think it's more than that, isn't it? It's a bit, yes. it's sort of a, it's a, I mean, you do a better job of explaining it. I still think of just candles, but that's very narrow-minded of me. But um, I want to talk a little bit more about those pressure points that you experienced during COVID. Um, And tell me about what it was like, just the roller coaster of trying to run, particularly in manufacturing in Melbourne and in a, you know, in a retail space. How on earth did you survive? Um, When COVID started to unravel, or just before, we knew that we were an industry that was fairly saturated, as many business owners would do, is their niche down. And that's where we came about creating Brandscent, which is a scent marketing agency, but it was targeting events companies. So you flipped from... from, from, from We do both. Yeah, but you did services during COVID. That's so smart. And so during that, just before... Because it was events and hotels and all of this, but as COVID hit, those industries started to fall like dominoes. And so a business that we just started had almost come to a grinding halt. So Light and Glow, on the other hand, it was also almost like a knee-jerk kind of reaction. We were not sure what to do. How do we um, start to amplify our voice on the digital space? We weren't really big on the um, online market because we were really targeting the wholesale market. So with retailers now shut, that arm really took a hit. So Light and Glow was in trouble um, in terms of the wholesale market. Retailers were starting to close their doors. And as many people know, Melbourne had repeated closures. And so the hits just kept on coming. 
in July of 2020, what Melbourne did was they shut everything down. So as manufacturers, we couldn't manufacture anything for eight weeks. Childcares were closed, schools were closed. So I've got three children. And so I had three kids at home. They said, you can dispatch um, products. And I said, I, I was thinking, I only hold maybe a month's worth of products in the warehouse. And if I can't manufacture, this is gonna be in trouble. Uh, because a lot of people were home, they were starting to buy. So the market was starting, online space was starting to pick up, people were purchasing, um, but we still had to curb costs because we had staff costings, we had overheads that were still, you know, we had to pay rent regardless. Yes, there was a rent reduction, but it was still pretty hefty. And then they threw in the, you've got to pay $1,500 for staff that were only there for like two days or three days or seven hours. So the expectations around the workforce started to change as well. So your, it was almost like a minefield. We were dealing with so many things that, A, it was hard enough as a small business owner still navigating the space, but to throw COVID in that no business, however small or large, has ever dealt with was extremely hard. And then, yeah, it was. It just honestly put us in quite a bit of a dark space at for us personally, we were like, what do we do? We stepped and we were one of those companies that stepped into that sanitizer space and we got burnt, severely burnt. Um, we purchased- Because you produced a lot of- We purchased from a lab because obviously we're just a manufacturer of candles. So we purchased, we, we have a bottling facility, oh. um, but the price gouging on that was just phenomenal. And then the what happened was as we were just about to release the stock, the Chinese market opened and that there was an absolute um and so we've still got the stock sticking and sitting in our warehouse four years on um empty bottles um sanitizer I'm not sure I I don't um we don't use that there's canisters of it sitting there 25 liter and then but it's more the packaging the bottles we've got like 10 20,000 units orders that were coming through were suddenly cancelled in favor of overseas sourced because it was more margins and that's really where we struggle we're an Australian made brand and a lot of people although things are changing now and only slowly people favor things that are made offshore and I do understand there are costs involved but just the understanding of how much Australian made and costs and all of those people really didn't understand but it was a bonus for COVID though because I remember we were on ABC at the time and we started to explain to people started to have a newfound understanding of what Australian made meant what shopping local meant what supporting the local economy Australian jobs so that was the I think with COVID you need to see what's positive and there's a saying that I love to say is you can spiral one of two ways. You can either spiral up or you can spiral down. And we chose to spiral up. And so after the initial kind of going, oh my God, what am I going to do? It was like, right, pull your socks up, get together. We have families to feed our families, those of our staff, things that need to be done. Let's get a move on. So it takes a certain kind of person to do that. I do understand. But I think when you have so many things around you that you need to focus on. You've got to, you've got to keep going. And that's what we did during COVID. But the repeated closures, because we moved warehouse again in 2021, 
and Melbourne locked down once again. Was that because you were downscaling or because you were upscaling? No, we were upscaling again. We were growing. Because so, of the online sales? Online sales, yes. Um, and online sales were growing great. But we pushed hard. We got agents who were in different states. So all other states were open. So we thought, right, let's get agents in Queensland, New South Wales, WA, where there's not many restrictions and get them to go on the road. So we need to be creative in the way that we operate. Nice We're pivot. restricted here in Vic, mm. but we're not restricted elsewhere. Question for you, when you were going through all these difficulties, um, you've both got backgrounds in medicine. Mm -hmm. By then you'd done a lot of, um, I guess, education in the small business space and you understand, had that acumen and you'd received help. But where did you go to to get advice at the time when this was all happening, when changes were happening? Um, and we'd, so there's, we're part of the Victorian Chamber of Commerce, so they've been extremely helpful when it comes to um, even warehouse checking or staff checking, you know, uh, putting us in contact with university to have interns and all of those things. They Brilliant. have been on the phone. Um, local council. Mm -hmm. So local council have an economic development unit and most local councils. And I'd just like to say publicly, every council should have an economic development unit. Yeah. All of them have tens of thousands of businesses. Yeah. Some of them don't even have an officer. Wow. Well, we okay. don't here in Hornsby. We don't even have an EDO here in Hornsby. And there's 13,500 registered businesses in Hornsby. All of them, bar like five, are small or to medium. Wow, that's shocking. Yeah. yeah. But So you speak to me of like these massive upheavals and those are the people that help when you really need them. Yes. I think you've got to be open and honest. That's the best part. I think if we hide and say everything's okay, everything will be okay, or you bury your head in the sand, I do that with finance, so I leave that to someone who knows what they're doing. But um, it's not going to be okay because when you pull your head out of the sand, it's still there, the problem's still there. So you speak to the people in the know who have connect. Ask them to put you in places or in connection with people. So the one thing that Jeeva often says is ask somebody, what's the worst that they can say is no? And if I say to you, Alexi, can you introduce me to so-and-so? Or if I ask someone else that I know at council, can you put me in contact with someone who is purchasing or sourcing for X, Y, Z? They're going to do it if they can help. Um, so there's no harm. And that's really what we did. We started to ask people for help. I started to ask for connections. And I said, as I mentioned, connections are so important. Those connect corporate connections. We started to make those bigger corporate connections, but build on those. It wasn't just a transactional connection. It was a human connection and people can tell the difference from a mile away. And so those connections that we built from that random shop small campaign filming started to lead to bigger things. And that's how I ended up in the parliamentary showcase because when their PR company thought of a company, they're like, let's get light and glow in. So if you put your position yourself in places and spaces where you can be seen, hmm. people will start to put, uh, connect you up. And that's really how we've scaled and built our own personal brand as yeah. well as our commercial brand. But you've also built an influential brand when it comes to policy. You know, you spoke about the influence that you had um, at Murdoch uh, for being influential in policy and how you were quite passionate about that. Yeah. And then you moved into the Multicultural Business Ministerial Council where you could influence policy. Where do you see the future of that given your experiences? Where do you want to help from this point forward? I think a lot of policies have been put in place to be almost, um, they're so old, almost archaic in that they don't really think of how businesses are operating now. Post-COVID, we're operating in a very different scene. Even so, um, what is the measure of success? And I've had this conversation with multiple people when it comes to grants. They often say, you need to reach a threshold of 1.5 million 
Otherwise, please don't talk to us. The door's closed. They won't even look at it. The first question they ask you is, what's your revenue? So when we were smaller, it was like, I am successful. If you measured me in different ways, um, measure my the impact that I've had, maybe my profit margins. So you feel locked out of that grant process. There's yes. this $1.5 million yes. threshold. Yeah. Um, I've not actually heard of that in practice. So does that mean that you can't access grants for growth? Pretty much. Um, so if you're not making $1.5 million in revenue, you're not considered a successful brand, I assume, that you're not considered worthy enough of being given a grant because usually the grant is if they're giving you, you know, $100,000, you've got to put in a hundred. So they don't think you're capable of doing that. I just, So they, a lot of the criteria that they have there is have X number of employees, 1.5 million. I don't think I've seen a grant out there that, you know, substantial grants other than the smaller ones that are 5,000 or 10,000. And was that something that you'd like to see changed? How yes. would a business like yours uh, like to see that changed? Is it about making it, those limitations smaller before people yeah. can access the grants? I think it should be assessed case by case. If I don't hit the 1.5 million, maybe I need to, um, I guess, account my case in a way that I believe my my success is measured through. Maybe it's the staff that I own, the capacity, whatever it may. I think growth, growth, uh, profitability, and all of those things. There's so many other measures of success other than just revenue. Like there are so many brands out there that are making 10, 15, 20 million, but their net profits are you know, a fraction is nothing. They're not taking much home in. Whereas there are many businesses who are under that threshold, but they've got a solid business with a great net profit, all, you know, policy procedures, everything in place, yeah. yet they're shut out. And you mentioned that really important aspect is if you've got to have your compliance in order. You have to understand the numbers in your business and see yes. where the growth patterns are in order to sell that into the possibility yeah. of getting a grant. But I like what you're saying about making it a case-by-case basis. It's a bit lazy, isn't it, yeah. when the government just goes, here's a threshold. We're yeah. not going to look at you otherwise. We're not yeah. going to treat you for your uniqueness and your capacity to build. And does that mean, therefore, that they're missing out on a lot of opportunities to grow the small business market in lots of different segments? I completely, we've been there. So when we were under that threshold, the number of times we thought we could really do with machinery here, we could do with a grant here, we fit every criteria. And I can, if you sat here and I told, and as an interviewer, I could plead my case and I'm sure I could win you over, but I don't get that opportunity. Right. And I have sought counsellors, I have seen politicians, I have met with many of them and they each think we have a, and we do have a successful brand and business. And at that time we did even, yet because we didn't fit that 1.5 million, um, we were shut out. Well, if we've got any bureaucrats listening from Treasury today, that's some really good advice. If you want to see the small business market grow and, and become medium and then you know allow yeah. the opportunities to, to flourish, that sounds to yeah. me like a gimme and a really good opportunity there. So we might uh, put that to a few bureaucrats <laughs> and see what they have to say. I guess they say, everyone says, oh, you know, the small business is a backbone of the economy. What are you doing to support it? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We need a little bit of scaffolding around that backbone. Look, um, thank you so much for joining me today, um, Suji. Tell me where people can find out a little bit more about your business. Sure. So we've got two businesses, Light and Glow and Brandsamp. So we're on social media. We're on LinkedIn. Um, We'd love to connect with you personally as Suji Sanjeevan and um, happy to help where I can. You'll find all those connections on Small Biz Matters. You can follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. We're going to take a quick break here on Triple H 100.1 FM. When we return, we'll find out who's coming on the program next week.
This episode of Small Biz Matters is proudly sponsored by the Australian Small Business and Family Enterprise Ombudsman's Office. As Biffio assists, advocates and provides information to Australia's 2.5 million small and family businesses when and where they need it. Aspifio delivers practical and actionable advice and research to governments on how to improve policies and legislation. Since its inception, Aspifio has responded to over 40,000 requests for assistance from Australian small and family businesses and provides access to dispute resolution services, including assistance with disputes that fall under the franchising, dairy, horticulture and oil codes. Aspifio also connects small and family business with mental health support should the need arise. As an independent advocate for small business owners, Aspifio is committed to ensuring that Australia is the best place to start, grow or transform a business now and well into the future. See how Aspifio can support you at asbfeo.gov.au. You're live in the studios of Triple H 100.1 FM. Let's find out who is on the show Small Biz Matters next week. We have the very inf- informationally operative, no, that's a word. We have Steve Walters on the program from BCA. Now, he is absolutely a fantastic guest. I uh, met Steve in a number of um, government departmental meetings where he was an economist with New South Wales Treasury explaining what was happening with the economy during COVID. Fast forward, he's now with the Business Council of Australia and we're going to be talking about how economists influence policy, both inside and outside of government. It's going to be a fascinating discussion because there needs to be a recognition that economists, whilst they don't have necessarily a finger on the pulse of what's going on with small business, they are incredibly influential in both the media and in advocacy work and in government work when it comes to the policy making process. So how does that work? How do they figure those things out? How do they take macroeconomic conditions and distill it down to making policy come out of that? And then of course, what we want to see is more economists understanding what's happening in the small business economy, because really that is where the engine room is, that's where everything is happening. And that's the canary in the coal mine. How do we make sure that economists around Australia are listening and understanding the small business side of things and that perspective in order to drive policy forward? So make sure you tune in next week, Tuesday, 9am here on Triple H 100.1 FM. If you've missed any of today's show, you can, of course, catch up via our website, smallbizmatters.com.au. Just click on the radio and podcast button and make sure you download Small Biz Matters wherever you get your podcast and have a listen. There's over 223 podcasts available for you to download, a huge back catalogue where you can learn how to run your business, but also why it's so important in terms of people, policy and purpose. We'll see you all next week.